I thought I would share with you. These are actual, authentic letters from kids writing to Santa Claus. So if you're one of those parents, you know, who, um, I don't know, lies to their kids about the Santa thing, then uh, maybe you'll resonate uh, with this. I'm just joking. It's okay. My kids always are like, Dad, you lied to us about, or Dad, you didn't lie about Santa. We missed out on our childhood. Uh, Anyways, these are Santa letters. Dear Santa, me and my little brother have been trying our best to be good, but first things first, I would like to be an elf on the shelf. I have been practicing. I can sit on a shelf for like half an hour so far, and my brother Michael wants to be a reindeer. In fact, he's practicing right now. He can fly two inches. Real letter. Dear Santa, bring me a pony this year, or there will be consequences. (laughs) Dear Santa, I just want Simba's dad to wake up. All right, all the, like my kids growing up on Disney movies, you get that one. Dear Santa, I think Levi wrote this one, I want an order of french fries, a chicken nugget, just one, and a computer. So I don't know if that's what's on your kids' list or not. So those are real Santa letters. Now, it used to be like popular to send out like a Christmas letter. My parents did this for years. They would write a Christmas letter and send it out of everything kind of going on or a summary of stuff going on in the life of the family. Does anybody do this? Okay, dad still does it, a few people. Um, I get a few of them. I think we've kind of moved away from that. I feel like the amount of Christmas cards that I used to get compared to how many I get now has dramatically decreased. Are you with me on this? I still get a few. And every once in a while, I get one of those Christmas letters. Um, Ash and I used to always get this Christmas letter from this um, uh, acquaintance that we really barely knew. We were kind of in the same space for a short amount of time. Uh, But she would always send this Christmas letter. Uh, Because of her personality, it would be like seven pages long. And then we would usually get it in like February. And the, the letter would be like, um, I didn't really have time or I've just been able to get this together. And so I would always look at it and think, um, you wasted a lot of words and postage to send this to me. Straight deposit to the trash, right? Like I'm not reading seven pages about what's going on in your life. I really don't care that much. So if you send me a Christmas letter, I'll read it and care. But in this case, I didn't. You can send Christmas cards. Those are amazing and awesome. Ash reads them. Ash reads letters word for word. And I do too. If you send a letter, you'll get it. But it's only uh, from the survey, it's only going to be dad. And we're obligated to read his. So um, we're usually included in it. I have to make sure it's accurate. So Christmas letters still happen, right? Just don't send a small novel in February and you'll be okay. Over half of the New Testament are letters, Half of the New Testament are books that were written as letters. We call them epistles. In other words, it just means letters. They were written by apostles. They were written to local gatherings of Jesus followers. We call that churches. And the apostles would write these letters to these local gatherings or in a few cases to the pastor of uh, local churches like Timothy or Titus. Uh, but most of the time it is a, an apostle writing a letter to a local gathering of Jesus followers. Now I want to I'll pause right there and just say like that alone lets us know how important local gatherings of Jesus followers is. Like 
It's kind of a big thing now, like to not necessarily, I'm not really part of a church, but I'm part of the church, and God doesn't really care if you show up at church. That's not the New Testament precedence. The New Testament precedence is, no, plug yourself into a local gathering. They're going to be just as screwed up as you are in a lot of areas and broken, but that's how the gospel goes forth, through local gatherings of Jesus followers. And just the fact that over half the New Testament is written to local gatherings uh, lets us know the importance of local gatherings. So, so I tell you, like, plug into a local gathering. If that's City Church, awesome. If it's not, find one that preaches the Bible and help pushes you in your Christian walk and your journey and is gospel-focused, Jesus-focused, all those things. But these letters that were written to these local churches, in this case, the church at Colossae, uh, they contain essential core theological and practical teaching for churches. And for this series, we're going to look at three sections in three of these letters that center on just one question. And that question is this, who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is the Christ of Christmas? And from these three texts, the church has constructed some of its most important beliefs about who Jesus is. If you've heard me teach about local churches and all those things, you've heard me use the illustration before of kind of the concentric circles idea. The, the biblical teaching should be kind of divided into these circles. And then the very center circle is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Those are things that we don't compromise about. Those are things of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have to believe certain things about who Jesus is. Uh, there's a second circle that kind of defines movements. It defines denominations and what they believe about other things that are not second circle. And then there's a third circle that has all kinds of stuff in it that a lot of people just agree to disagree on. But what I'm talking about in this series, let me be clear, are center circle issues. These are closed-handed issues. They're not open-handed. They're not up for discussion when it comes to what it means to follow Jesus. These are center circle, closed-handed issues about who Jesus is. Jesus once posed this question to his disciples and subsequently to all of us. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And that is a pivotal question. Who do people say that Jesus is? And most importantly, who do we say? Who do I say that Jesus is? You see, like the disciples in the first century church, this 2,000-year-old question is essential. It's essential to our faith. It's essential to our everyday life, and it impacts everything. This pivotal question moves beyond just the nativity scenes. It moves beyond just the, the nursing baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. It moves beyond the lying in a manger Jesus. It moves beyond the Ricky Bobby Jesus, right? It moves beyond all that. It moves to the essential core of who Jesus is. This question, who is Jesus, strikes at the heart of human existence. Who is the Christ of Christmas? Listen to how Paul answers this question in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, and here's the key phrase for this entire passage, 
in him or in everything, he might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth um, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So why would Paul write such pivotal words to a church located in Colossae? Uh, this church in Colossae was in danger of turning from the faith, of walking away from what they believed about who Jesus is. Like many times, after Paul would be in an area, plant a church, he would move on to another area, he would establish leaders in that church. And often, it's particularly in the first century, as everybody's trying to navigate what is all this who new faith and what does it mean to follow Jesus. A lot of times behind Paul, there would be people come into these churches that were basically false teachers, heretics. And they would come in behind Paul and teach things that were different from the gospel. And that's found in almost every one of Paul's letters to local churches. He's addressing this. And in the church of Colossae, this false teaching has crept into the church concerning who Jesus is. These false teachers are denying that Jesus was fully human or fully God. Or some of them both. And so Paul's purpose in the book of Colossians is to defend who Jesus is. A lot of New Testament scholars call the book of Colossians the most Christ-focused, Christ-centered book letter in all the New Testament. The theme of the entire book is the importance of who Jesus is. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And so Paul goes right to the heart of this when he opens up the book of Colossians. He gives these kind of normal routine prayers and introductory remarks like he normally does if you read the very beginning. But then immediately he turns his attention to the question at hand. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what Paul teaches us about who Jesus is in this section is core to our beliefs. Center circle. Closed-handed issues. Most New Testament writers, scholars, they summarize Paul's teaching here with just this one idea. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus Christ is the preeminent Lord. That word preeminent means he is unsurpassed, he is paramount, he is exalted. There is no one like him. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no one above him. He is preeminent in all things. And then Paul provides the specific reasons why Christ is preeminent. And he takes us on this journey of kind of narrowing down all the way from the big picture down to our individual heart and soul. So let's look at these things. He says Christ is the preeminent Lord. Uh, first and foremost, because of his relationship with God, with the Creator, with who God is. Look again, verse uh, 15, what Paul said. Two important phrases. Phrase one, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, phrase two, of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He starts with God, and he uses very precise language here concerning Jesus. This word image is crucial to understanding who Jesus is. I'll kind of give it to you from two angles. The word image means that Jesus represents God. An image represents an object, right? So if you think in terms of a picture, you see the object in the picture. You don't see the real person, right? We live in an Instagram day and age where um, pictures are part of our normal life on seeing people's lives and where they're at and all these things. But when you are looking at an Instagram account or Facebook or whatever it may be or just pictures on someone's phone, you're not seeing the real person. You're seeing an image of that person. Uh, when Kaylee was studying abroad, 
Um, she studied in London, uh, London and actually had the opportunity to go and visit her and kind of tour some of Europe. And we um, went to uh, Paris and we saw the Eiffel Tower. So I had like this, this, this idea, like I've got to be that guy that like takes a picture with like, it looks like the Eiffel Tower's in my hand. And we've got like 400 pictures of me not getting it right. Of like, it's either way too big or it's way too small till we finally got it where it kind of looks like it's in between my fingers. Now, that's not the actual Eiffel Tower. It's not the size of the Eiffel Tower. It's just an image. It represents something that is real. It's an image that represents. Paul says, Jesus represents God. Think of a reflection in a mirror. The word translated image is where we get our word icon, right? A statue. Jesus represents the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God, uh, Paul says. But this idea not only means something to do with representation, it also means that Jesus reveals God. It goes beyond just he represents God. In this context, the word image conveys more than just representing, more than just a symbol. The word image carries the idea that Jesus reveals to us the invisible God. He makes the invisible visible. He is the ultimate revelation revealing of God to humans. Jesus makes God understandable. He makes the invisible visible. He reveals God to us. One of the letters we'll look at is the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew writer says Jesus is the exact representation of God. Uh, John, the follower of Jesus, we went through the gospel of John a couple of years ago. John says that Jesus came to make God known to us, to reveal God to us. So it's this idea of revealing. So I find it interesting that when God reveals himself to the world, that he does so primarily in the form of Jesus Christ. He does so as a human. And that's what Christmas is about. That Christmas is about, and the, the big kind of theological word we put on this is the word incarnation, which is a Latin word that means to make flesh, to make human. That when God chooses to reveal himself, that it, he makes himself human flesh. He becomes flesh. Christmas is about that idea of incarnation, that God becomes one of us. He enters our space as one of us. As this vulnerable, dependent, destitute infant, he comes in that form to earth. Now, let me make an interesting point here when it comes to this phrase, he is the image of the invisible God. If we were to flash back to our Exodus series, when we talked about the uh, Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, we often call them. If you remember commandment number two, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, if you remember, is you shall not make any, and the word that's often translated is graven images, right? And we're always like, what does the word graven mean? It's really just like a likeness. You can't, you're not supposed to make likenesses of God, make God into an image. And so we read this phrase like he is the image of God. And then the second command is like prohibits God's people from trying to capture who God is with an image, that no person wants to make a likeness or an image of God to worship. In other words, what was pro prohibited in the Ten Commandments is like, don't try and make the invisible God visible. Here's part of the reason why. Creating a likeness of God restricts God to that image. That God is confined to that image. Let me illustrate it for you with another religious figure. And you can kind of picture how this happens. When I say the name Buddha. 
what happens? There's an image that comes to your mind, right? There should be if you know anything about like world religions or history. All right? Buddha. Think in your mind of Buddha. You have a, you have a mental image of, of Buddha, don't you? What he looks like. God's people are prohibited from trying to capture God into some type of image. Trying to narrow him down. The second commandment forbids the attempt to capture God in a human created likeness. Why? Because God is bigger than any image that we can conjure up. That we can come up with. I mean, that's what the Israelites were doing at the foot of the mountain while Moses was up there. Remember the story? They were like, take all of our gold and put it in the fire. Remember Aaron was like, I, was, I, was, I mean, I'm innocent. It was just like a golden cow came out. I threw all this stuff in and the cow came out. They were trying to make God into an image to be worshipped. They wanted a tangible God that they could see and worship. And God forbids it. No human image can accurately reveal God. We just get glimpses of God throughout the scripture. And then Jesus comes along and it says, He is the exact image, right? The exact image of God. That only Jesus is the true revelation of of God. The reason that Jesus does not violate the second commandment is because Jesus does 100% reveal who God is. He gets it right. Who is the Christ of Christmas? He is the image of the invisible God. He reveals God to us. Paul also uses this phrase, and I promise you we're not going to take this amount of time on all the phrases. The, the second phrase he uses here in this verse 15 is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a tricky expression because when we think firstborn, we think like born, right? He was, did not exist and now he exists. Matter of fact, I was talking about false teachers and heretics in the, the first season of the early church. One of the groups that came out of the early church was the Arians, and the Arians taught, as a matter of fact, there's this famous phrase in church history. Um, Arius was this 4th century uh, preacher from Alexandria, and he taught that Jesus was created. As a matter of fact, the, the famous phrase that there was an entire church gathering, a council that came to refute this, um, Arius used this phrase, there was a time, talking about Jesus, there was a time when he was not, meaning he did not exist and God created him. And the church is like, no, that's not right. And so they all gathered into this city called Nicaea around 325. And they released this, this, famous, um, this famous statement that's like refuting Arius. Now, I can tell you kind of where that's modernized. If you've ever been sitting in your house and someone knocked on your door and said, hey, we're with the JWs or the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe the same thing. They believe what Arius believed. As a matter of fact, within their teaching, uh, they say this, Jesus was the first and direct creation of Jehovah God. They believe that Jesus was created by God. That there was a time when he was not, just like Arius. So, when Paul uses this phrase, right, firstborn of all creation, these are the type of phrases in the New Testament that Arius or modern day JWs will use to try and, and prove this. So is Paul suggesting that Jesus was created? Well, I mean, you have to know at this point, the short answer to that is no. Um, this phrase has to do with the idea of priority or rank or superiority. In biblical times, the firstborn son possessed the full rights, the highest rank in the family. Paul is not suggesting Jesus was created, 
Paul's saying Jesus holds the highest privilege, highest authority, highest rank over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. These two descriptive phrases bring together, bring together, bringing them together. It means Jesus reveals who God is and Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. That he represents God and he is supreme over all creation. That he is the preeminent Lord. And his relationship with the creator God affirms who he is. You see why this is so important? See why it's central, like central center circle issues, close-handed issues? Now, Paul moves, kind of narrows down here. Christ is the preeminent Lord because of his relationship with the creator. And then he goes to creation. So God and then creation. Look back to 16, 17. For by him, again, Jesus, for by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So Paul says all things were created by him. That Jesus is the God of creation. That he is the creator. And the original idea is that it was created in him. Meaning that creation with all of its complexities. And we talked about this some last week. With all of its complexities was conceived in the mind of the son of God. That creation was his idea. So when we read in the very beginning of the story. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That also means that God the son is a part of that. In the beginning God. God the son in this case. Created the heaven and the earth. That he is the creator God. The son of God was pivotal in the creative act. And he says here all things, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, were created by him. He also says all things were created through him. This word through means by his word, his ability, his power. That everything that came into existence is because of him. That he is the cause agent by which all things were brought into existence. And he also says all things were created for him. By him, through him, for him. That's kind of all encompassing about Jesus' relationship with the creation. That Jesus is the ultimate goal of all creation. That everything exists to bring glory to Jesus. That in the end, Jesus will be glorified by all of creation, by all, cre by all creatures. So, let me illustrate Paul's reasoning here. Um, and the illustration is this. That if, if, you, if you ever see a sculpture or a piece of art or a work of art, uh, then we know that there is an artist behind that. All right? And so an artist, let's just use a sculpture. A, an artist who produces a sculpture, originally the idea and the details of that sculpture take shape where? They take shape in the mind of that artist. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know how they do it because I'm not like artistically inclined. But for a work of art, a piece of art that comes into existence, it starts between someone's ears. They have the thoughts, the ideas, right? And then from there, mentally, they envision it. They envision the proportions, the perspectives, the, the details of this work of art. And then it goes from just a, a mental image, right, into it actually being constructed or painted or drawn or um, built or sculpted, if we're talking about a sculpture. And so it goes from this artist who's the only one that can see it to an actual piece of art. He makes it. Well, what happens at that point? Well, after it's gone from between the ears and it's been sketched or drawn, again, him giving all the details, and then it's been constructed, then guess who else enters the picture? 
All the observers, the participants, those that look at the sculpture, those that walk through the museum and point to the painting, those who listen to the, the music, the performance, right? We become participants in that work of art. But guess what? We're not the artists. We're just looking or listening or seeing what the artist has done. He makes it, and then we admire it, right? We admire the art that is brought into existence. The art itself is pointing to an artist. The artist who imagined it, who planned it, who accomplished the work. The sculpture just allows the participant to appreciate the artist. The art always points to the artist. Do you understand what Paul, Paul's reasoning here? That he created it, he formed it, he shaped it, he made it, we live in it, we observe it, we're a part of it. But at the end of the day, all of this is pointing us to who? In the end, it is pointing us to God. That he deserves the glory. That he is the one that is worthy of our praise and worship. That Jesus is the point of creation, Paul says. He is the preeminent one because he is the artist. And in the end, all creation will glorify him. That he is the creator. Center circle issues. Relationship with God. Relationship with creation. Look where Paul goes next. He says that he is preeminent because of his relationship with the church. Um, or, or the, before we get there, let me, let me just mention these. Um, he says he is before all things. That means he, again, is the eternal God, that he existed and brought things into existence. Um, he says he holds all things together. He's responsible for sustaining the universe, keeping things in order. He's not forgotten it. He sustains it. He maintains it. He holds creation together. And so there's the relationship with the creation. And then we get to 18, where he says he's the preeminent Lord because of his relationship with the church. So he's going from God to creation to within this creation, there's a people. There, that is his church. Um, City Church, our number one core value is that the church belongs to who? To Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. It's not our church, it's not Devon's church, Ashley's church, Elder's church, Leader's church. It's not even City Church's church. There's a lot of churches. Um, it is the church belongs to Jesus. He is, he is the head of the church. I say on occasion that Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. That we want to point people to him. That he is the lead of this church. And the church belongs to him. And we see it here in verse 18 that he is preeminent because of his relationship with the Church. So let me read that verse again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That he is preeminent. So Paul grounds the preeminence of Jesus in his role as the Redeemer, as the head of the church. We have seen who Jesus is, and then Paul reminds us in this, of this redemptive purpose, like why he came. And these two statements in verse 18 are so important. He says he's the head of the church, that the church belongs to him. There's a lot of images of the church in the New Testament that kind of find roots in the Old Testament. Family, kingdom, uh, vineyard, the flock, the building, the bride. These are all things that have kind of Old Testament imagery. But one of the only exclusive New Testament images of the church is this idea that we are the body of Christ. Because of the idea... Notice the transition. Because of the idea that God came down to earth and took on a human body. 
And so there's this image in the New Testament that we are the body of Christ because there was a time and space, a time, a, a, a moment in time where God entered into our space. That the church is a body interdependent upon each member. But at the head of this body is Jesus and Jesus alone. And as the head of the body, he provides life to the body. He sustains the body, controls the body. It's his body. As a matter of fact, without the head, the body will die. That's why we don't see any headless bodies walking around. Unless you're watching The Walking Dead. But even on that, once the head's gone, right? Zombies useless at that point. So, he is the head of the body. There's your Walking Dead theology for the day. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. He is also the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, Paul says. The emphasis here is on Christ as the originator. The beginning of the church. A product of his resurrection is the birth of the church. That his death, resurrection, and ascension initiated the church. And guess what? Here we are 2,000 years later. Now, when Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and ascended back to the Father, that there was a church that was birthed, a movement that was born. We read about it in Acts, right? And post-Acts. And this church was initiated by the firstborn from the dead. The one who was raised back to life that kicked this whole thing off. And that 2,000 years later, wrap your mind around that, 2,000 years later, we stand in the current of a movement that started when Jesus went back to earth. Based on his death and his resurrection, we stand 2,000 years later and we affirm what Paul teaches here. That is his church. The church belongs to him. So we discover Christ is the preeminent Lord because of his relationship with the church. He is the head of the church, the originator of the church. And then I'll just mention this final, again, as we kind of narrow this gap from God to creation to the church, Paul takes it all the way down into the life of us as individual followers of Jesus, as the Christ follower, because of his relationship with us, 19 and 20. Um, Paul says, for in him, again, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So verses 19 and 20 provide these two reasons why Paul says at the end of verse 18 that, um, that, that all things should have, that Christ is preeminent in all things. He says because of who he is, right? All the fullness of God dwells in him, that he is fully God, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. I like this phrase that he was pleased for this to happen. That's a good thing, right? He was pleased for God to come to earth. Now the reference here again is to God becoming flesh, the incarnation that in Christ all the fullness of God dwells. In other words, the incarnate Christ, wrap your mind around this, possesses all the properties, all the characteristics, all the prerogatives of God himself. That Jesus is fully God. And that God was pleased to take on human flesh. He is God and continues to be both fully God and fully human. So, when we decorate our mantles, by the way, beautiful job, ladies, decorating the mantle here. I don't know how much longer we'll, I'll be preaching in front of a mantle, but 
Um, beautiful job decorating the mantle. But when we are putting out our nativity scenes on our mantles and we, you know, bring out the little baby Jesus in his swaddling clothes and he's always got some halo or looks like some majestic little child, right? Which we know all those nativity scenes are just so realistic, right, in the portrayal of what happened that night. I mean, being born in a barn, I mean, who wouldn't have a halo around your head? And the way in the manger teaches is the baby didn't even cry. Like, how impressive is that? That's the theology of Christmas hymns. No crying he makes. I'm guessing he was screaming his lungs out because he was a baby. But anyways, and so when we put out these nativity scenes with this little baby, Jesus, and that's our image of Jesus, you have to think in your mind that in that Christ child, the fullness of God dwells. The fullness of God in an infant child for a redemptive purpose. Verse 20 says, the true purpose of the Christmas event was redemption, reconciliation. That he came to reconcile all things to himself. The angel told Mary, name him Jesus. Because the name Jesus means he came to save his people from their sins. That all of creation was impacted by sin, by the fall. Therefore, all of creation will one day be restored through the blood of His cross. That all of creation was affected by sin. The world is out of order and chaotic and needs correction. And that the reconciliation through the cross is provided in Christ. That He makes reconciliation and redemption possible. And when we narrow that down all the way into our individual lives... The idea is that the sinner can be reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. That the enemy of God can have peace with God through the blood of His cross. That He has reconciled us. It's why He came. The purpose of His coming. Christ is preeminent because of His relationship with me. That he is God robed in the flesh who shed his blood on the cross so that I might be reconciled to him. To see the babe in Bethlehem, the nativity Jesus, and to fail to recognize this divine redemptive purpose is to miss the true meaning of Christmas. There was an Italian Jesuit missionary that took the gospel to China in the 16th century. His name was Matteo Ricci. And Ricci took the gospel to China and he brought along samples of religious art to try and illustrate the story of Christ for a people who had never heard it, never been exposed to it. And what he discovered is the Chinese people that he was seeking to reach with the gospel, they readily adopted portraits of the Virgin Mary who was holding her child. But when he produced the paintings of the crucifixion and tried to explain that this God child grew up and was executed on a cross, the audience reacted in revulsion and horror because they much preferred the Virgin Mary with her God child than they did worshiping a crucified God. But to miss that picture, to miss the redemptive purpose, is to miss why he came and to miss why he was born. 
that he is the preeminent Lord because ultimately he is a reconciler. He is a redeemer. Who is the Christ of Christmas? He is the preeminent Lord in every way. Because of his relationship to the creator, he is God. Because of his relationship to the creation, he is the creator. Because of his relationship to the church, he is the head of the church. And because of his relationship to us, individual followers of Jesus that proclaim him as our redeemer. And so as we narrow that question down, it really becomes a personal question. Is Jesus the preeminent Lord of my life? Have I repented, turned from my sin and turned to Jesus alone as the one who can bring reconciliation to my wayward heart? That is the core of the gospel, isn't it? Have I turned from me and have I turned to him? The one who has revealed God to us. Is he preeminent in my life? Who is the Christ of Christmas? He is the preeminent Lord. And we find it in the letters.